protest. In other words, Protestants are a group of people that exist in protest. What are they protesting? The Roman Catholic Church. They exist as a group in protest of the Roman Catholic Church. Did you guys know that? A lot of people don't even know that. It was started in protest of the Roman Catholic Church in an effort to reform the Roman Catholic Church. That's why it's called the Protestant Reformation. The problem was they were booted from the Roman Catholic Church. They were not successful in trying to reform it. Their desire was not to leave it or to depart from it or to break unity with it. But they knew that they had to stand on particular doctrines and that they could not give those up. They were non-negotiables. And when they did not give them up and the Roman Catholic Church did not go their way, they got booted. And they started what we call the Protestant Church. One of the first guys was Luther. John Calvin is another. Zwingli. John Knox. You guys heard most of these names? Several other reformers. Why? Why did they do it? Why are we Protestant as opposed to being Roman Catholic? I mean, Jesus prays in John 17 for unity among his believers, doesn't he? He prays for unity among his believers. So why is there still disunity? Why are we not unified? Do we not take the prayer of Jesus seriously? Or is there some great divide, some issue that is worth dividing over? What I find is that most people think that the problem is this. They think the problem is that we are Protestant because the music's better in Protestant churches than in Catholic churches. Or the children's and youth programs are better. Or, you know, the Catholic churches are still caught up with those kind of stodgy old buildings and all that formalism. And we don't need all that formalism. We don't need all that. We don't need all that Pope and hierarchy and priests. And so that's why we're not Roman Catholic anymore. That's why we're separated. People will argue that. I've heard it multiple times. That's what it is about. That's what people kind of default to. I hear the argument that, well, you know, they pray to Mary. And in fairness, they don't really pray to Mary. They just ask Mary to approach God on their behalf. They're just trying to help get her help and trying to get help of other saints. They want as many people praying for them as possible and beseeching God for them as possible. That's why we're separate. They have a Pope. That's why we're separate. I hear all of these reasons that this division has occurred. In other words, what people think generally is occurring is that we're Protestants and they're Catholics or Roman Catholics. In fairness, we're all Catholics in the sense that we believe Catholic just means universal. Okay. So we believe we're Catholics. We just don't believe we're Roman Catholics. We're part of the universal church of Christ. We're just not Roman Catholics in fairness. But the reason that we're not Roman Catholics, people think, is because they have certain preferences that we don't share. Basically. In other words, they're marketing to their people. And if that's what they like, that's fine. Those customers are satisfied over there. And we're marketing to what we like. And that's fine. Our customers are satisfied over here. That essentially the issue is what satisfies the attendee. As our customer, 
these customers like formalism and, and they like really beautiful buildings, which I'm with them on that part of it. You know, their buildings are a heck of a lot better looking than ours, but they, and they like the, you know, the ritual and they like all of that kind of stuff. And then these customers over here, they kind of like the hit music and they like to not have to dress so formal and they like to not have to go six times a week and, you know, and whatever it is, right? And they just, these customers like different things than these customers do. And as long as they're all satisfied, that's the main issue. Because what people think is the dividing problem is what? They think the major problem that we're trying to answer is how do we satisfy people? Right? And they have a different way to answer the question of satisfying people in the Roman Catholic Church than we do in the Protestant Church. But somehow that's the issue. How do you get customer satisfaction? Because the problem is people are unsatisfied and unfulfilled. And so we find what fulfills them and satisfies them the best. That's the ultimate problem. And therefore the answer is whatever you want, right? There's no really, there's really no truth at stake. And so then people start to realize, Hey, if it's just about what satisfies us, why are we still separate? Why can't they just conform? And maybe they could allow some guys to be married as priests and they could have some kind of more hip churches. And, and, uh, and you know, then we could kind of just come right back together because that's the issue. I, I hear it all the time. I see Protestants and, and Catholics talking about this all the time. Here's the problem. That is not why we divided. Has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. The problem that we were arguing over the answer to is not the problem of how do you get people fulfilled or satisfied? The problem that we're arguing over the answer to is how is someone who's a sinner, who's under the wrath of God, justified? That's the problem. How is that person get to a point where they are declared not guilty How are they saved? How does that happen? See, here's the problem. Man is under sin. And as a result of being under sin, he's under the wrath of God. He's unsaved and therefore he is damned eternally to hell. How do we resolve that problem? How do we get him justified? See, that was the problem they were trying to answer. And they have two different answers to that question. Do you understand that? Roman Catholics have a completely different answer to the question of how is a man saved than Protestants do. Completely different answer. That's a major question, isn't it? Two major questions in the Bible. Who do men say that I am? In other words, who is Jesus? Catholics have the same answer as us. Roman Catholics have the same answer as us on that question. Who's Jesus? They answer the question the same. Second question, what must I do to be saved? How do I get justified? In other words, what is the gospel? What is the good news? We have completely different answers to that question. Completely different answers to that question. In fact, there are two different, two differences in our answer. You guys ready for these? We're going to deal with both of them. One of them today and another one in a couple weeks. The first difference in our answer is this. What is the nature of righteousness? What is the nature of the righteousness of God given to us in the gospel? That's a difference. What is the nature of the righteousness of God given to us in the gospel? Is it imputed to our account? 
or credited to our account? That's the Protestant answer. Or is it infused in us? Or does it inhere in us? Does it become essential to who we are? That's the Roman Catholic answer. In other words, is it credited to us legally? Or is it infused in us, inherent in us, essential to who we are? That's one issue. The other issue is, how do we receive that righteousness? It's the other difference. How do we receive that righteousness? Do we receive it by... Here, here's the list. Do we receive it by a doctrine of justification that begins with first plank of Roman Catholic doctrine of justification is baptism. When you're baptized, justification occurs. Okay. When you commit a sin, whether, oh, particularly, well, I should say this, there's two different ways they look at sin, venial and mortal. When you commit a venial sin, you're going to rack up some time in purgatory because you have to reach the point at which you're completely Okay, completely justified. Does that make sense? You've got to just be completely justified. So you're racking up some sin. You've got to get it burned out somehow. You can go to pe- do penance, etc. But when you commit a mortal sin, you lose your justification. You lose it. So you've got to go to plank two of justification. Plank two of justification is penance. And you have to go through all of these things in order to reacquire justification. So the Roman Catholics live in constant fear that they are unsaved. They live in constant fear that they're unsaved because they think they have to go through a series of sacraments to retain their justification. And then ultimately, they're not really justified until they reach the point of perfect sanctification, which most of them can't ever reach in this life. And so you go to purgatory to burn out the rest of the sin so that you're perfectly sanctified. Therefore, you can be declared righteous and you can go to heaven. That's their doctrine of justification. It's not, it is by faith, but it is not by faith alone. It is faith and sacraments, works, etc. Come over here to the Protestant view. They say, no, you're justified by faith alone, instantaneously. As soon as you believe, you're justified, you're declared righteous. And it's a legal declaration of you that can never change. Never change. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the working of that out. But you know what? If you never grow to complete holiness in your practical life, when you die, you will still immediately be ushered in the presence of God because you've been declared holy legally by God through Christ. Does that make sense? Two completely different views of justification. Today, I want to look at just the first part of it. What is the nature of the righteousness of God in the gospel? What is the nature of the righteousness of God in the gospel? That is Paul's concern here when he's talking about justification. Justification is declared righteous. What does that look like? What's the nature of that righteousness? And I want to focus really on three characteristics, three characteristics of the nature of the righteousness of God. And they're all starting with F's and that wasn't intentional. Clint pointed out to me that I was alliterating this week and I didn't even notice it when we were talking. One is that it is a foreign righteousness. Two is that it's a forensic righteousness. And these are the technical theological terms. I didn't go up for a leap there on them. So, you know, one is that it's foreign. Two is that it's forensic. And three is that it's free. It's a foreign righteousness. It's a forensic righteousness. And it's a free righteousness. And that's what we're going to look at. So look with me at verse 21. It's a foreign righteousness. But now the righteousness of God 
has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's not our own. It's the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness from God. It's not the righteousness of Chad has been revealed, right? Or the righteousness of Kevin has been revealed. It's not the righteousness from your good works that have been revealed. It's a righteousness of God apart from the law. It's a righteousness of God that is not coming from good works. It comes through faith and it's from God. He is the source of it. And it's his own righteousness. It's completely foreign to us. We're all under sin and we're all unrighteous. So we know that the righteousness of God given us through faith in Christ is not our own, right? It isn't ours. It's his. It's foreign to us. It's from someone else. It's a divine righteousness. So when we talk about the word, the righteousness of God, what do we mean? You know, there are three different ways the Bible talks about it, at least And we could nuance them differently, but there are three primary ways the Bible talks about the righteousness of God. The first one is this. In Scripture, God's righteousness refers to God's attribute of being perfect and holy in character. Righteousness of God refers to his attribute of being perfect and holy in character. It's a characteristic of God. Psalm 36.10 says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Psalm 71, 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things, O God, who is like you. Psalm 97, 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Psalm 119, 142, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. So one of the things we see in the righteousness of God is that it refers to his own righteous character. Second, that it refers to his justice in upholding his law. Not only does the righteousness of God refer to his righteous character, but to his justice in upholding the law. That's the second thing. Romans 3, if you're there, look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? How will our unrighteousness serve to show the righteousness of God? Because we're unrighteous and therefore God gets to do what? Punish us gets to like he's looking forward to it. You understand that's not what I mean, right? He does not delight in the death of the wicked, but God does punish the wicked, doesn't he? And when he does punish the wicked, his righteousness is demonstrated in that his justice is shown. Look down at verse 25, verse 25 of chapter three. We see it again. It's talking about how Christ is put forward verse when it says whom it's talking about Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's to satisfy God's wrath is what that word propitiation means to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. In other words, Christ was punished. God's wrath was satisfied on Jesus to show God's righteousness. The righteousness is being talked about here is what his justice, his justice. Acts 17, 31 says, because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Those are two of the ways. One, to show his own righteous character. That's that's one of the kinds of righteousness of God is his own character Two, his divine justice. And the third way. 
The third is the manner in which the righteousness of God is way it's spoken of in the Bible is as a gift to sinners. Hear that? As a gift to sinners. It's spoken of as the way in which God will, by his grace, fulfill all he requires in the law. He will fulfill it. In other words, God has provided a perfect standard in his law. He's provided a perfect standard and he will keep it. He will keep it. Not only that, he's also paid the penalty that God's righteousness requires for the violation of the law. Think about that. That's a gift he gives you to sinners. He gives you a perfect law and he keeps it. And when we violate it, he says, I'll pay the penalty for it. How can this be? How is that possible? Jesus kept the precept. You guys know what I mean by precept? The command of the law. And he paid the penalty of the law. He did them both. He kept the law perfectly and he paid the penalty for those who didn't. Jesus Christ lived in perfect conformity to God's law, tempted in every way yet without sin, thus keeping the precept or righteous requirement of the law. Jesus also died on the cross, wherein he suffered the wrath of God due to everyone who would ever believe, thus satisfying the righteous justice of God against sinners. As a result of this great act of God, we can now be declared righteous in Christ. But we have to remember it's a foreign righteousness. Ultimately, we can say the Lord is our righteousness, can't we? In other words, I recognize that, you know what? When it comes right down to it, I'm a sinner, aren't I? You're a sinner. We're not actually righteous in the sense that on a day-to-day basis, in and of ourselves, we're righteous people. That's not the case. But in Christ, we are clothed with his righteousness. When we're in Christ, we're clothed with his righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness has been given to us. Isaiah 61.10 speaks of it. Here's what it says. I will, re- will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Talking about the Messiah. The Lord is our righteousness. Romans 1, 17. Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? For in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed or is revealed from faith to faith. That is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a gift to us. The great commentator Robert Haldane has said that this foreign righteousness from God in the gospel differs from all righteousness there ever was or ever can be performed. How does it differ? It's different in that its author is God. Hear that? This isn't righteousness that we could ever come up with. That we could ever achieve. It's different than that its author is God. It was divinely accomplished by God himself. And is thus a divine and infinitely perfect righteousness. Think about that. Infinitely perfect righteousness has been given to you. 
Through Jesus, we are counted as having the righteousness. I want you to stop and hear this. We are counted as having the righteousness of God. Do you hear that? How could you ever be accused after that? You can't. That's why as a Protestant, we talk about the fact that you dwell securely now in Christ, don't you? No one could accuse you or rob that from you. You have the righteousness of God credited to your account. Can't be removed. That's a judicial verdict given by God in Christ on your behalf. Period. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter. I love this passage, and sometimes we read over these passages really quickly, but turn to 2 Peter. In case you're curious, 2 Peter is before 1 John. The end of your Bibles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and then Revelation. So you know it's right towards the end. 2nd Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing, he says this. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Here's who he's writing to. To those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. How? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not by their works, right? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Look what he says in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us. His precious and very great promises so that through them, now hear this, his precious and very great promises, the gospel, so that through them, through those promises, what? You may become partakers of the divine nature. Do you hear that? Through the promises of the gospel, you are made partakers of the divine nature of God's own righteousness. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Paul summarizes it well in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, God made him, who's him? Jesus. To be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the what? Righteousness of God. Think of how different the righteousness of God is in Christ because God is the author. God's holiness and righteousness was exercised in making the law and governing us by it. But when Jesus came, the sovereign giver of the law became subject to it. The sovereign Lord was subject to his own law, thus demonstrating how righteous the law is, doesn't he? And why Paul can say by the gospel, we uphold the law. Haldane goes on to say that his righteousness then was that of infinitely the most glorious person that could be subjected to the law. 
This righteousness that is given up to us in Christ is not only foreign, but it's also forensic. So not only is it foreign, it's God's righteousness, but it is also forensic. It is something that is declared legally true of us. That's what I mean by forensic. It's a legal declaration when you are justified. Look, go on and read this in verse 23. For all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift. Hear that? All of sin and have been declared righteous. How? By his grace. It's the righteousness of God. It's a forensic righteousness. It's imputed to us in justification. It imputed means credited to us. Credit to our account. It doesn't inhere in us. He's not saying that all are made righteous. We don't suddenly at the point of justification become people who are as righteous as God. We're still sinners. That's why one of the cries of the Reformation was simultaneously sinner and what? Justified. The same time we're sinners and we are justified or declared righteous. That's the doctrine of justification. Now, is there a real internal change that happens to you when you come to faith in Christ? Yes, but that is not your justification. You don't stand before God and say, the reason that I can be here is because I saw a real change in my life. Do you? And as a result of that real change in my life, when I became a new creation in Christ, as a result of that, I lived out pretty righteous life from then i grew in my faith i became increasingly sanctified i gave i was an honest person etc etc and so the reason i can stand before you now lord is because i became a new person no you stand before god and say the reason i can come into your presence is why because i'm in christ and his righteousness has been credited to my account There is a reality in which you are changed when you are in Christ and in which you grow, but that is not your justification. That is not what you stand before God and plead on your behalf. You don't stand before God and give him your testimony. As much importance as we give to testimonies, and I'm not saying testimonies are bad, sometimes we overplay them. And we act as if the work that God has done in you is your hope. And it is not. It's a result of your hope. It's the work that God has done for you objectively in Jesus. That is your hope. Your testimony is a result of believing that. It's not your justification. I've hinted at this already, but I want to make it clear that the foreign righteousness of God is credited to us. It's not actually inherent in us. The Roman Catholic Church argues that the righteousness of God is something that inheres in us. They think it becomes essential, essential to who we are at baptism. But it must be perfected in us before we're able to stand before God. Thus, why they hold to the necessity of sacraments, good works, and ultimately purgatory to become justified. They will say you not you cannot be declared righteous unless you are in fact righteous. You hear that? 
You're still a sinner. You can't be declared righteous. You cannot be declared righteous unless you are in fact righteous. You know what they call it when Protestants say that you are simultaneously sinner and justified? They call it a legal fiction. That is their words. Council of Trent, you can look it up. It's a legal fiction to say that someone can stand before God declared righteous when they are in fact a sinner. The only way they will ever be declared righteous according to the Roman Catholic Church is if they actually work out their salvation. And they work it out by sacraments, good works, and ultimately, because they can't do it all in this life, purgatory. And there's a few that are able to work it all out in this life. And they call them what? Saints. And a lot of the saints do what they call supererogatory works, which is a redundant statement. Supererogatory meaning works that go above and beyond the call of duty. Above and beyond what God actually requires. And as they do their supererogatory or save up their supererogatory merit, they stand before God. They have more holiness than was required. They are more sanctified than was required. And therefore, according to the Roman Catholic system, that extra merit, the supererogatory merit they've saved up, is deposited in the treasury of merit. And you all can make withdrawals on it by praying to that saint or visiting a relic, etc. And you can get some time out of purgatory that way. I actually heard them talking about it on Fox News. When Pope John Paul II died, you guys remember this? They, were, they had all kinds of news coverage. One of the things they talked about on Fox News was the fact that they were thinking about sending his heart to Poland. Now, Why? Why cut out his heart and send it to Poland? I think they ended up sending like a lock of hair or something. Why? I sat there and listened to the priests in the Vatican say the reason they're thinking about doing it was so that people could visit it and they could withdraw from the treasury of merit. By visiting, they could get time out of purgatory. And that's hopefully get to their justification sooner. That's a very different system of salvation, isn't it? They call our view a legal fiction. We're going to return and discuss this more when we discuss justification by faith alone or the Reformation cry of sola fide, which is faith alone. We'll discuss it more when we get to that. But I wanted to at least cover it briefly. Contextually, We are those who have sinned and fallen and are falling short. Verse 23. We are those whose mouths are stopped and are held accountable to God. Chapter three, verse 19. We are those who are under sin. Chapter three, verse nine, who do not seek God, are not righteous, do not do good and do not fear good. Chapter three, nine through 18. That's who we are. And yet we're credited with the righteousness of God. We're not those who've worked out everything by good works. Look at chapter 4 really quickly. I'm not going to spend time on this, but look at verse 5 of chapter 4 of Romans. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him, God, who justifies the ungodly or the wicked, his faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies who? 
the wicked. He declares righteous those who are wicked. He does not declare righteous those who are righteous. It's a very different gospel that's being preached in Roman Catholicism. And thus the reason we don't have unity with them. Doesn't mean we don't love them. Doesn't mean they're a cult. They have the same Jesus. They have the same father. They have the same Holy Spirit. They submit to many of the same creeds. But at the end of the day, they have a different gospel. They have a different doctrine of justification. And that's huge. It's huge. What happens when you add to faith for salvation? You nullify the gospel, don't you? According to Paul in Galatians. And what does Paul say in Galatians? Even if I or an angel come to you and preach to you a different gospel, let him be anathema. You know what that word means? Eternally condemned. Even if your church leader or an angel comes to you and preaches a gospel that's different than the one that we preached, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. Some pretty strong words. We are the ungodly who are declared righteous. But you know what goes um, further than what I think a lot of people think? Sometimes I think people believe the nature of this declaration is a statement that God is only saying you're not guilty. And that's it. So here you are as a sinner. God has now declared you not guilty. And that's all in Christ. And it goes further than that. Those of you who are guilt-ridden and are always struggling with your salvation, you, you really need to hear this. Because some of you were there. It goes so much further than God declaring you not guilty. God does not only declare us not guilty so we can become obedient enough to merit a reward. So I think that's what people think happens. God declares us not guilty and then we can become obedient enough to merit a reward after that. You see, when you're declared not guilty in a court of law, are you then offered a great reward? No, you're just declared not guilty, right? You're not offered a reward. Good job. You're not guilty. Here's your reward. You are now subject to inherit all of the treasures of the earth because you were found not guilty. That doesn't happen, right? If this was all the foreign righteousness of God that has been given to us accomplishes, then we're no different than Adam before the fall. You guys hear that? If God's righteousness in the gospel only declares us not guilty, then we are no different than Adam before the fall. Because before the fall, Adam was what? Innocent, wasn't he? He was not guilty of any sin prior to the fall. He was innocent. He was innocent. But he was also what? Subject to damnation if he did not perfectly keep God's law, wasn't he? What does God clearly tell Adam? If you eat of that fruit, you will be what? 
you'll die. You're going to be condemned. The moment Adam sinned, he'd be guilty and unable to receive any reward. See, if we return to that state only, we would lose any hope of reward and again be subject, subject to the penalty of the law every time we sinned. But the righteousness of God and the gospel is different in that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, all of it, thus keeping the precept of God's law. And he died once for all time, thus forever fulfilling the penalty of God's law. The work of Jesus doesn't have to be repeated. Therefore, as those who are united by Christ in faith, we are forever declared righteous. We've not been returned to the uncertain position of Adam prior to the fall. We are in Christ and therefore now declared righteous forever. Do you hear that? You're not like Adam pre-fall. You're far better off than he was pre-fall. He was innocent pre-fall, but he had to keep God's law or else he'd be damned. That's not where we are. In Christ, God's law has already been kept. The penalty for our sins already been paid. We're righteous forever declared righteous. Even when we sin. We're now credited with the righteousness of God, which leads to my last point, which is that this is a free gift of God's grace. It's a free gift of God's grace. It's given to us as a gift of God's grace. Verse 24 is really clear about that. It says we are justified by what his grace as a gift. The nature of God's righteousness in the gospel is foreign. It's not ours. It's God It's forensic. It's not something that's inherent in us. It's something that's imputed to us or credited to us and it's free. It's not something we earn. It's a free gift. We receive. We can't do anything to bring this about. It's something God lavishes on us richly in Christ Jesus. When we say something is grace, we define that word as what? You guys know? Unmerited or undeserved kindness. It's a gift of God's grace. Unmerited, undeserved kindness. So we didn't deserve it, did we? It was unmerited or undeserved. When God gave us the righteousness of God in the gospel through Christ, when he gave it to us, we didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. It was a gift. He was being kind to us. We deserve the righteousness of God to come against us through him exercising his wrath. And thus vindicating his holiness. We don't deserve the righteousness of God that has been graciously given to us in Christ. That justifies us. Romans 5 verse 15 and 17 says this so clearly 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that being Adam, much more have the grace of God 
And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, you guys have heard this. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, turn there and I'm going to end there. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's a gift of God. What? Salvation by grace through faith is a gift of God. All of it is a gift of God so that no one may boast. James Montgomery Boyce stated three applications of the truth of the righteousness of God as a free gift apart from works. Ready? What are they? One, if salvation is a gift of God apart from human doing, If salvation is a gift of God apart from human doing, then we can be saved now. Do you hear that? We don't have to live in the uncertainty that over a billion people in this world who are Roman Catholic are currently living in. Which is that they cannot be certain that they are saved now because it is not until they've reached the point of righteousness that it will be declared to be true of them. But if it's a free gift, unmerited grace, a declaration made by God of us, then we can be saved right now. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to work it out through life. You don't have to get to the point where you finally go to purgatory and burn out the rest of your unrighteousness so it can be declared true of you. It's a gift. And it's true right now. The moment you believe. Second, if salvation is a gift of God apart from human doing, then salvation is certain. Not only can we save now, but it's certain. It's not something that could ever be taken from us. 
Because if we can lose it, that meant we could do what? We could earn it in the first place, right? If you can undo it through your bad deeds, then you can get it through your what? Good deeds. And if you can get it through your good deeds, then you can undo it through your bad deeds. But we don't say that. The gospel doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. It says it's a free gift. And it's certain. God isn't a God up there going, you want justification? Here you go. No, psych, you know, here you go. Let's take it away. Like he's playing with us. Every time we sin, taking it away. He gives it to you. And it's certain. Third, if salvation is a gift of God apart from human doing, then human boasting is excluded and all the glory to God goes to God in salvation. Human boasting is excluded. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. So that no man may what? Boast. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. It's excluded. It's gone. We boast in who? God boast on the cross, not anything in us. We don't look at our neighbors and go, you know what? I was smarter than you, more righteous than you, more wise than you made better decisions than you. And therefore I'm saved and you're not. We don't do that. Do we boasting is excluded. I received a free gift. They haven't received yet. I don't look down at them. I look on them with what pity, concern, love, care, a desire to see them receive the same free gift I've received. Not a desire to look at them as you're unrighteous and I'm not. Look, this topic is huge. It is the center of all that we do. The reason we are here gathered as a church and that we are you hear me out. We are at least by appearance disobeying Jesus's command that the church be unified is because we believe that the issue is important enough to do so. We believe. You hear me out. We believe that this issue is so important that the Roman Catholic church cannot actually be a true church. Because if we believed it was, then we are in disobedience by being here and not unified with them there. That's how key or central we think this issue is. You, you hear that? That's why you're in protest. We don't gather on a particular church because we think the music is cool or the building is cool. In this case, you're obviously not here for that or the chairs are nicer <laughs> or any other ridiculous reason we gather in the church. We gather in because we believe the gospels being preached there. Do you hear that? Because we believe the gospel is being preached there. That's why we exist.
to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you that you have made the gospel so clear in your word. And Lord, we are saddened, deeply saddened by the fact that Satan has been so successful oftentimes in perverting it or that he has caused it to be degraded in some sense in the minds of men and women around the world and we pray for them. Lord, that they would see the truth of the gospel. And Lord, we, we are grieved that the gospel has been lowered as a priority in the church so often. And Lord, we pray that you would give it its right place as the central, the central rallying point of all Christians. Lord, that it would not be a program in our church it wouldn't be something we talk about for the sake of unbelievers. But Lord, that it would be central to all we do. That we would proclaim it for your glory and for the salvation of your people. And Lord, that we would understand that we can never leave it behind. We can never get past it. It will always be what we're about. Because Lord, it's what you were about. It's what you declared. It is the good news you have given us. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. I don't know if there's any here, Lord, but if they don't know you, that you would demonstrate to them, you would show them their sin and the truth of what is a result of their sin. And Lord, that they would recognize also the grace that is offered to them in the gospel. It's a free gift through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would turn and repent and embrace him. Believe in him. Trust him only. In Jesus' name, amen. First.